Well, good morning. Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you please to open them up to Revelation chapter 21. And, uh, and this morning we will begin in verse 9, chapter 21, and go all the way to verse 4 of chapter 22. So 21, 9 on to 22, 5. And, uh, I, I had hoped to do this in one message, uh, but we're going to have to give it the time that it deserves. And so we're going to park here for a little while. Two messages on this section of Scripture, to be sure, maybe three. Uh, now, now, as you're turning there, I want to introduce this section by reminding you that your Christian life, listen, it's not a gamble. Sometimes we, we, we think of it that way. A very famous man thought of it that way. Maybe you heard of Pascal's wager. Blaise Pascal. He was uh, an apologist in the 17th century. And one of his arguments for why you should be a Christian was what came to be known as Pascal's wager. And it went like this. So he imagines himself, a Christian, speaking to an atheist. And he asks the atheist, consider the odds and make the best decision accordingly. He goes on, if I am wrong and you are correct when you say there is no God, so he says, if I the Christian am right and you the atheist are wrong, then when we die, we will have lived good lives and go into the ground the same. I'll go in the ground the same as you. But if you are wrong and I am correct and there is a God who demands to be worshipped, then I will go to be with Him forever and you will die and go to hell forever. And so you see why it's called a wager. Being a Christian is simply put forward as, well, it's the best bet. Do you see a problem with that? For one, it's, it's not biblical. Uh, the Bible says we all know there is a God and we know a lot about this God and we hate this God. And so on the face of it, it's not even dealing with the problem. But more than that, and in a worse way, the wager doesn't even work. Because if you, if you have the kind of faith that Pascal describes here, you're not a Christian. And the reason I can say that is because you don't actually have faith. You have some kind of, of faith in, in something, but it's not the kind of faith that saves. Listen to Hebrews 11.6. It says, Without faith it is impossible to please the Lord, for he that comes to God must believe that He exists. Right? So it's not hedging your bets. Must believe that He exists and rewards those who seek Him. So Christianity is not a hedged bet. It is a sure and certain hope. It's a confidence that God is, and not only that God is, but that He is good and that His Word is true and that He will fulfill His promises to His elect. That's our hope. And, and that hope and everything that is contained in that hope, it's symbolized and compressed and packed into these 24 verses that we are about to read. Revelation 21.9-22.5 to 
Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, and I will show to you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had great high walls with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. It was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, and the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the city, uh, the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter in, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him. And they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will have no need of light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word and the great encouragement it is to us. And God, I pray that You would help us, Lord, to... Believe the glorious things you have said in this passage, Lord. Help us as we, as we go through it to know what's being said, Lord. To see how you see your bride, your wife, the bride of Christ. Lord, you love us with an everlasting love. You have blessed us unimaginably. And I pray, God, that you would Lord, help us to believe it. Help us to see it and to believe it this morning. I pray that you would help me to preach. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. It's in your name we pray. It is you we seek, Lord. Amen. Amen. Now, what do you think of the church? of the church, of 
When you think church, what comes to your mind? Or you could put it this way, do you love, do you love the bride of Christ? You know, if you ask anyone that question, they, they give the answer, yes, of course, I, I love the church. <clears throat> but do you mean it? They say, oh, of course I mean it. How do you really think or speak about the bride of Christ, about the church? It's, it's becoming very popular in recent times to, to dog on the bride of Christ, to give the bride of Christ a really hard time. And sometimes people talk about the bride of Jesus in ways they wouldn't dare talk about their own or someone else's bride. You say, what do you mean? That kind of language? The reason the world is in the state it is church. Hollywood is, is pumping out all kinds of perversity because the church failed to be the church. Culture is the way it is because the church failed to be the church. Every problem in the world. There are some people who just boil it down to the church not being the church. Even, even sometimes, uh, I found an article online not too long ago saying that it's just ridiculous. The Holocaust wouldn't have happened if some evangelical Lutherans had just been the church. Never mind that it took the combined might of the United States, the United Kingdom, and the Soviet Union to defeat them. No, if the church just had been the church, never would have happened. But where does that kind of thinking come from? And why do people think they have the right to castigate the bride of Christ? And you hear people talk as if, as if when God comes back, he, He's going to have His crosshairs on His wife. Be very careful if you think you can blame all of these things on the church, just not being the church. Because look, this, this book, Revelation, do you know where it says all of these things come from? The sins in society and culture and media and politics, all of it? Revelation puts the blame where the blame goes on the dragon and the beast and the harlot and Babylon and those who worship them. And when God comes back, He isn't going to have His sword drawn and His arrows pointed at the church. He's going to have His sword drawn and arrows pointed at the beast and His kingdom. It is not the church's fault the world is the way it is. The church is the light of the world. The church is called the salt of the earth, the only hope of salvation from judgment. And God isn't going to come back and berate her for all of the evils going on. He is going to come down and rescue her finally and forever from all of the evils that are going on, right? At the end of the age, God doesn't come back to deal with the church. This doesn't mean the church doesn't have problems. Doesn't mean the church and Christians don't sin. We see right in chapter 2 and chapter 3, they do. But that's not where God has pointed and directed His judgment. Jesus loves His bride. He died for His bride. He redeems His bride. And this passage that we have just read is His description of that bride in her glory. As the passage that almost universally suffers from uh, misinterpretation. In fact, it's probably one of the mis most misunderstood passages in the Bible. For example, if you were to ask just a random selection of people from the evangelical church today, describe to me one element of heaven. Just one thing, tell me what it's like. The answer would be probably something from these verses. Oh, it's got gates of pearl. It's a big city, really tall. 
It's got streets of gold. That kind of thing. And, And people believe that because, well, that's just what they heard. That's how this passage is preached and taught when it comes to eschatology, when it comes to the end times. What's heaven going to be? Where are we going to spend eternity? A big golden city with gates of pearls. I think it's kind of silly to think that what we've read is a description of a physical city that will descend from heaven. I think it's very foolish to think that it's a physical city that will descend from heaven. So we'll, we'll hold on. What? That, that's what I believe. Yeah. Convince me. You know, up until this point, when we've approached opposing views regarding Revelation, uh, I, I've tried not to be very hard on them. And for good reason. There, there's a lot in this book that is maybe not so clear or agreed upon by the church. And in things that are not clear, where there is no real agreement in the church, we ought to be gracious and we ought to be ecumenical. But I can't do that here. We'll say, why not? Because it's crystal clear what's being communicated in these verses. This is, this is not a point that really ought to be up for debate. Because if you get it wrong here, you malign the bride of Christ. You, you get it wrong here, you distort what God is doing in this passage. You rob the bride of Christ. You steal from her comfort and glory. I don't think anyone does that intentionally. It's just kind of the, the course of interpretation when it, when it comes to this. But I, I want to take the idea that, that says this is a physical description of a literal city, and I, my hope is that we can break that to pieces because that's not what this passage is about. It's not a physical city that comes down. Do you know what the city is? You say, well, it's not a physical city. What is it? We just read it. We are told right in verse 9, it is the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb. That's what the angel says the city is. And so if you care about the grammar of the Bible, well, pay attention to what it says. The angel says, I will show you the bride of Christ. Does not say I will show you the dwelling place of the bride of Christ as if it's a, an empty city that will come down and be filled with people. Doesn't say that. The city is the bride of Christ. And if you want to take it literally, then you have to say Christ is married to an inanimate object like gold and pearls and precious stones. And nobody believes that. Now, the only sensible approach to this passage is to realize that this city, listen, just as the harlot and the world was symbolized by Babylon, the new Jerusalem coming down is symbolic of the church, the bride of Christ. And the reason we believe that is because that's exactly what it says. And it matters. This is not just splitting hairs. I mean, do you, do you honestly believe that God wants you to be excited and encouraged about heavenly pavement? That He wants you to look forward with longing to His architectural imagination, how He can build really tie skyscrapers. I mean, His, his beloved bride, His sons and daughters going through the book of Revelation, they've been enduring the wrath of the devil himself. They've been persecuted and hard-pressed. Some of them have lost children. They've lost jobs. Some of them have lost their lives. For His sake, they have suffered the loss of all things. And they've lived however many years of sorrow enduring the trials that come. And the great encouragement 
and reward and promise God gives them is you get to walk through a great big pearl. I know everyone thinks about the city this way, but it misses the whole point of what God's doing. Nobody's heart burns within their chest when they contemplate streets of gold and atmosphere-penetrating towers. This passage is about the church. It's about us today and in glory. You read commentaries on it, it's a little bit discouraging. Uh, Volvert, in his commentary on Revelation, he says, while the beauty of the city may have symbolic meaning, no clue is given to its precise interpretation. Now, he's absolutely wrong when he says that because verse 9 says, it is the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb. There's a clue to its precise interpretation. But, but he presses on, since it is reasonable to assume the saints will dwell in the city, it is best to take the city as a literal future dwelling place of saints and angels. Well, the text doesn't say that. It doesn't say it at all. And listen, Volvert's not a junior partner in the theological realm. Volvert is, is generally a good, reliable commentator. Or Charles Ryrie, certainly better known, he, he writes at this point, shaped four square like a cube, the city is 13, uh, 1,380 miles on each face, including height, with a 72-yard uh, wall, a 72-yard thick wall. It has been calculated that even if only 25% of this space were used for dwellings, over 20 billion people could be accommodated spaciously. And so Ryrie and Volvert, and there are others from the dispensational perspective, they take this as a literal city. So in a symbolic book where the city is called the Bride of Christ, we're told to take it as a literal physical city. This really does damage to the point. I mean... I think it's as silly as a grown man thinking pets are in danger because he hears cats and it's raining cats and dogs. Now, these are stronger words that I've stayed away from purposefully throughout this book, but here they're warranted. You say, why? Well, for one, it's, it's obvious in Scripture who the bride of Christ is. It's the church. It's not a city. It's a people. That's clear. Ask anybody outside of the book of Revelation, who is the bride of Christ? Oh, that's easy, the church. So we're, we're interpreting the difficult in Revelation in light of the clear. But not only is it a people, there is a parallel going on here between the city of God and the city of Babylon, the harlot. Consider chapter 17, verse 1. One of the angels with the seven bulls. So it's the same thing that happens here in, in chapter 21. In 17.1, one of the angels with the seven bulls comes to John. So it's the same angel as here in 21.9. But what does that angel say? That angel says, come, I will show you the judgment on the great prostitute. Here, it's come, I will show you the bride of the Lamb. It's a contrast. John 17, in John 17, John is carried into a wilderness. Here, the same angel takes him to a high mountain. And if you're familiar with biblical history, good things usually happen on mountains. Bad things happen in the wilderness. But most importantly, look at how the God of this age, the dragon, the devil, look at how he treats the harlot. He uses her, he abuses her, and he destroys her in the end. But here, the, the true God, he adorns his bride... He adores His bride, and He saves His bride. 
You see why this passage is so important to get right? In chapter 17, the dragon hated his woman, the harlot, and he killed her. Here, the bride reflects God's love for His people. He isn't like the dragon. He gives His life for His bride. He purifies her. He loves her. He sustains her forever. And the city here, it's the ultimate eschatological expression of God's love for His people. Of God's love for us. Chapter 21 is about God's love for His bride, the church. I mean, think of Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what Jesus does for His bride. And that's what this passage is about. You make this about some fancy piece of real estate You miss everything that's going on here. This is the church being presented in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And the bride is glorious because she's reflecting the glory of God. Not not just today, but for eternity. And in His wisdom, the way that God determined to show us the glory, His His glory radiating uh, through and from the church, yes, today, and what it will be like fulfilled in the future, He determined to show this to us by representing His beloved bride as a holy city. It begins today. It starts now. And here we see the fulfillment of it. So this is a description of the people of God, including you. And there are aspects of it that have already begun and will be fulfilled in the world to come. And there are 12 12 descriptions I want to draw your attention to. You might find more or less. I found 12 might find more come next week, but this week we're going to look at the first six, Lord willing, this morning. And the first is that it is a gift from God. It comes down from God. So it, it doesn't expand from a local point on the earth. It's not like the mustard seed that expands and fills the earth. The kingdom of God does advance that way and grow that way, but this is speaking about heavenly realities. And we are not the the ultimate decisive factors in bringing our blessed hope to pass. It comes down from God. Now, this reminds us that everything that's coming, every blessing that we have, every good and perfect thing comes down from the Father of lights. The reason why we're acceptable in His sight, the reason why we will enjoy, enjoy eternal life, the reason why we will live while others perish, and why our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, All of it is a gift from on high. It's of God's doing. It's not us. And because God is the one who is doing it and God is the one who is giving it, God is the one who is guaranteeing it. You know, a passage uh, I I never actually preached on, but I I probably heard when I was younger a hundred sermons on it or more, and it's, it's Genesis 15. People love to preach Genesis 15. I understand why. If you're familiar with the chapter, it's it's the one where... Abraham is told to get ready because God's going to make a covenant with him. And to get ready, what does Abraham do? Well, he he cuts some animals in half and he he sets them apart and chases the birds away. And that can seem kind of strange to us. Why is is Abraham cutting these animals in half to make a covenant? Well, in the ancient world, that was a very important part of it. When two parties made a contract or a covenant, they would lay out the terms 
And then they would walk between these animals that were cut in half. And it was, it was to say, if I do not fulfill my end of the covenant, let me be like these creatures. Let me be cut into like them. And in Genesis 15, Abraham, he's, he's fending off the vultures, waiting for God to arrive to ratify the covenant with him. The day goes on, night falls, and Abraham falls asleep. And when he falls asleep, and we're not sure if he wakes up and sees this or if it's just a vision, but when he wakes up, God arrives in a theophany. He appears as a, as a smoking fire pot, and he, he makes the contract with Abraham, and then he passes through the animals alone. This is not the way the covenants worked. In the ancient world, you would, you would go through them together. Right? There was a, a give and take here. Well, what's going on? God passes through them alone. Well, God is still making a covenant with Abraham, but it's not a bilateral agreement. God promises to uphold His end of the covenant even if Abraham or his offspring fails. God is promising that He will do what He said He will do no matter what. And God takes the entire burden of keeping the covenant upon Himself. That's why He is the one who saves, the one who redeems, the one who loves, the one who blesses. He has promised to do so unconditionally for all of those who are in Christ. And you say, well, yeah, but you have to be faithful, don't you? Well, yes, but where does your faithfulness ultimately come from? That's not your own self-determination. It comes from God. Faith is a gift. Every good and perfect gift, it comes from Him. And every promise is guaranteed by God. You can't lose it. You are placed in Christ and promises made sure to you. I forget who it was, they said, for, for God to break His promise to you, Christ would have to be evicted from heaven. It's just not going to happen. That's the first thing we see. All of the promises and hopes we enjoy, they come down from God. Number two, the city is radiant and glorious. But it's not just radiant and glorious. The city is reflective. The city shines with the glory and the radiance of God Himself. And because the city is symbolic of the church, it means we and all who have trusted in Him, we radiate His holiness and one day will perfectly reflect His holiness just like we were made to do. You ever think about that? You were made to reflect the holiness of God. In the beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, made them in His image to be like Him, to look like Him. To uh, If you were to come down to the world and see Adam and Eve, you'd be able to study their lives and say, this is what God is like. And you know, today you look at your own life and you just, not even close. What an answer to prayer this is. We will radiate forever the glory, the holiness, the righteousness of God. I mean, have you ever prayed to be more like Jesus Christ? Have you ever lamented how unlike Him that you still are? You've been following the Lord for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years and all you can do is hang your head? I thought I'd be further along than this by now. When you arrive in this place, listen, there will be nowhere further for you to go, at least regarding your own righteousness. You remember the Beatitudes. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's you. I mean, just let that sink in for just five seconds. Plant that in the soil of your heart. A day will come when you will take stock of your life, your thoughts, your words, your actions. You'll get to the end of the day if there's still such a thing called days. You'll look back over it all and you will say with absolute authenticity and accuracy, I am perfectly satisfied with everything I have done or thought or said or been. There is no room for improvement. That's unbelievable, isn't it? Today, looking back over the, look over the course of your life at the end of the day, you're not going to be able to say this. There's groaning. And what is there? Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Not here. Not on that day. You will be satisfied. Now, there, there is a kind of person who is satisfied with their own righteousness today. Lots of people, actually. But they're foreigners to the people of God. Some people who have become satisfied with the level of righteousness they've obtained in this life, anyone who does that, that they don't understand sin or righteousness at all. Because for someone to be satisfied with, with what they have obtained today, they have to do one of two things, and usually a little bit of both. They either have to bring God way down so sin becomes really no big deal, and they have to bring their own righteousness way up. And in this person's mind, satisfied, your hunger is full more? No. That's what our righteousness will be like when He comes. We will perfectly reflect the glory and the radiance of God. Number three, it will be beautiful. Beautiful city. Now the church already is beautiful in God's sight. We have been made that way because of Christ. And the description here is of the, of the bride, of the city, of the people. It's a description of the bride of Christ. But, but not only in terms of moral perfection. It'll be pleasing to the eyes. And, and here we have maybe a glimpse of what the new heaven and the new earth will look like. Now, now I wouldn't be surprised, by the way, if God did use gold, one of the most precious things in this world, for pavement. I just don't think that's the point. But there's one thing we see here. It will be beautiful. Everything in the new heavens and the new earth and regarding the church will be beautiful. I, this, this ought to resonate especially with us. You see, we're all of us, we're, we're a product of, of the modern pragmatic mind. And when we set out to do anything, to build something, a tool, a shed, a, a building, when we go to do that, our main question is functionality. We want it to do what it has to do. We want it to do it well. That's, maybe that's the only consideration. Consequence, recent generations have created some of the ugliest things to ever exist. It won't always be like that. People have a capacity to appreciate beauty. Beauty is not really in the eye of the beholder. Beauty, true beauty, is what God has established as beautiful. You remember in Exodus when the tabernacle is being built, Moses is told, build it carefully in a certain way, God specific. And one of the reasons, there are, there are a few, but one of the reasons why God is so specific is He tells Moses, build it this way for glory and for beauty. See, before God, it's, it's not enough just for something to be merely practical, 
Right? It's not enough for it just to get the job done. It ought to be beautiful as well. That's why He created the way He did. This is a beautiful world and it's eminently practical. It's, it's good at getting done what it has to get done. And it does it in the most beautiful of ways. This is why in the past, uh, when we were influenced much more by Christianity, things looked a little bit nicer. Things were a little more ornate. My, my favorite example of this is a conversation between two men building a cathedral. There was a metal worker and he was, he was up on the roof and he was engraving the most elaborate protrusions and, and designs and etchings into the spire of the cathedral. And, you know, I, and it would have been enough just to slap some copper on there and call it a roof. Now, the goal was to keep out the rain. It didn't even have to be that high. But in their minds, it had to be beautiful. Well, the story goes, when he came down, someone asked him, why did you spend so much time up there where no one is going to see it? And he answered his critics, you, you do not understand. It is correct. Men will not see what I have done. But God will. And when He looks down from heaven... What will be the first thing that he sees? He was engraving it beautifully because it wasn't just to keep the rain out. He was doing it to the glory of God. Well, everything in the new heavens and the new earth, not only will it be perfectly practical, it will be perfectly beautiful. Number four, the church is the Lord's treasure and precious possession. Look at how she is described. There's nothing that could compare here on earth. There are, there are things talked about in this passage we don't have any reference point to. Pearls the size of gates. Gold that is transparent and clear as glass. All of it's an attempt to show the, the value that God has placed upon His people. God's people are precious in His sight. It's, it's unfortunate that this truth is very much abused very often today. And, and much is made of man in the name of God. And, and God has turned into a kind of cheerleader for our own ambitions. Right? He's a, he's a type of yes man who's always for whatever we are for, whatever we want. And he, he never says no or leads His people in any other direction other than the one they want to go. Well, that's had the unfortunate, that, that's true, unfortunately. But it's had the undesirable effect of, of throwing cold water on what God does say about His bride. Because when God speaks about His bride, the church, it becomes obvious that the church, or, or we can make it more personal, it becomes obvious that you in Scripture, you who believe, you are of immeasurable value to the Lord. You are of immeasurable value to God. Now, it's, it's not because we're so deserving. That's where the problem comes in. People think that we deserve it. We deserve God's love. We, we don't deserve it. Nobody does. But that does not mean that you're not precious in God's sight. It only means God's love. For, all that means, I don't deserve God's love. What does that mean? It means that God's love for me, God's love for you, doesn't depend on you being lovable, but on Him being merciful and gracious. That's sometimes hard for us to wrap our minds around. 
God loves me because He loves me, and it doesn't have much to do with what a comforting thought, right? To have God speak about Him in this way. But it's true, He really does love us, and He really does value His people. They are precious. You are precious in His sight. In Deuteronomy, three times. 7.6.14.2.26.18 You know what God's people are called? They are called His treasured possession. They're not just His people. They're not just His possession. They are His treasure. What does that mean? Well, it means if you were to go into heaven and open the storehouses, the treasury of heaven, and, and look inside, do you know what fortune you would discover? You know, have you ever seen one of those silly cartoons? You know, they're looking for a treasure, and when they finally find the treasure chest, they open it up, and inside it says something like friendship. And it's a little corny, but it's not wrong, is it? A good friend is better than a fortune. Well, if you looked in the treasury of heaven, you wouldn't find gold and pearls and jewels. You would find names. And if you looked hard enough, you would even find your own if you're trusting in Him. You are God's treasure. He has set His love upon you. In spite of you, yes. But the good thing is it means that His love for you isn't going anywhere. Consider the parable of the man who finds a treasure in the field and goes and sells all that he has to buy the field and have the treasure. Or the pearl uh, merchant who does the same. Now I know the point of the parable is we ought to give Everything we have to gain Christ. He is more valuable than anything the earth avails us. But that doesn't change the fact that God is not asking us to do something He hasn't already done Himself. And when He found His treasure, the church, what does Philippians tell us? Philippians tell us. He emptied Himself. He gave everything He had. The worship of angels, equality with God, riches without end, even His own life to buy, to redeem, to own that treasure. This is how God sees us. And when heaven comes to earth, we will live our entire eternities in a full assurance and awareness of that love. Number five, it is a safe place. We are protected. There are walls around this city. Big ones, thick ones, impenetrable ones. Ones that ensure God's people will never be harmed. 12,000 stadia high. Do you know why it's 12,000? Numbers in this book of Revelation, they're symbolic. 12, perfect number for God's people, multiplied to the, to the thousandth degree. It's to give us a picture of, of magnitude. It would be like if you were to say, describe a wall to your buddy. Uh, maybe you were over in Istanbul and you saw one of the great remaining walls there and you came back and you said, it was a mile high. Well, you wouldn't mean it was a mile high. It wasn't literally a mile high. What are you expressing? It was humongous. It was perfect. That's what God is expressing here. Perfect protection. One's walls that keep out physical harm. Yes, there will be no physical harm in heaven. But what do we need walls for? There are no enemies left, right? They've all been dealt with. By the time you get to the beginning of chapter 21, all of God's enemies have been written out. So what do we need protection from in the new heavens and the new earth? It is a spiritual protection. 
And these walls do not symbolize an eternally secure place, but an eternally secure people. I think of Isaiah 60.18, your walls are salvation. These walls are salvation. And they're not the kind that keep enemies out, but that keep out doubts and fears. This is like John in chapter 10.28 of his, of his Gospel. No one can snatch them out of My hand. Or Micah 4.4, no one shall make them afraid again. Well, what does this mean for the church? It means there's no fear of not making it. There's no fear of falling away. Here in this life, how many of you struggle with that fear? I just don't know if I'm going to make it to the end. God, help me to get there. Here's a promise. Walls. Salvation. Secure. Maybe that's not a fear that you have. And you look at the future with a kind of bring-it-on attitude. You're ready for whatever will come because you know in whom you have believed. Well, if that's you, wonderful. And you should thank God for that confidence because not everyone is like that. Even people who are holier and, and further along than you, they may not be like that. This is a, a confidence that is a gift from God, a gift of faith that not everybody receives. And so if you have it, use it to build others up. And for those of you who maybe don't have such an assurance, and for you it's a, a struggle to believe, it's a, a battle sometimes, and you feel as though you're walking on a razor's edge and could fall off in one side that begins now and, and carries on into eternity. Eternal life begins in this life. And not everybody has the same level of assurance, no, but, but there, everyone will have perfect assurance. And you know, there are, there are angels over every garden. An angel sent, what was the angel's job at the gate of the garden? Sword drawn to prevent anybody from ever entering in again. He guarded the way to the tree of life. But here, died. They're not cursed trying to get. And the first, this means, this isn't a separate Jewish plan and a church plan. You know, I, Again, reading in commentaries, 12 gates, which are the 12 tribes, and 12 foundations, which are the 12 apostles. Uh, another commentator on that wrote that the names of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles are a witness to their continued distinction. Couldn't believe it when I wrote it. When I called the Israel of God in Galatians 6. It says, why elsewhere, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, but those who are of faith are the descendants of Israel. And these gates and foundations, they don't represent their distinction. It's the exact opposite. They represent the unity of the people of God. And the point is it's a resting place for all of God's people, new and everyone who is in this city gets in by being a spiritual descendant of Abraham. And the city itself, it's, it's built on the teachings of Christ given by His apostles. That's the simple interpretation. God has and only ever has had one people and one plan. The people are those who believe by faith. The plan is those who put their trust in Christ. And why does this matter? It matters a lot because it means that all of the Old Testament promises and covenants are not just for an ethnic group of people descended biologically from a wandering Aramean. It means all of the promises belong to you. The, the promised land, that's the land to come. And it's yours. Blessing to the world through the descendants of Abraham... That's you. All the promises in the prophets, 
that they aren't for a left-behind ethnically Jewish Christianity in the future. They're yours to be enjoyed right now until they are completed in the hereafter. This changes how you read the Old Testament. Because you're not reading about a detached group of people that the Lord favored. You're reading about your history, your spiritual heritage, and future promises that are for you. And that's how you ought to read the Old Testament. When you look to the future, when you hear these promises, they are yours. Well, we'll finish next time, Lord willing, but... Well, maybe we'll finish next time. We'll see. But this really is about us. This is not about some future... It goes much deeper into the heart than that. God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He has promised to satisfy your soul forever. He has made you beautiful in His sight. He has set His love upon you and you are precious in His sight. He has assured you that you belong to Him. Her failure, she is not the source of all of the evil in the world. No, she's the only hope for the world because she has been given the light of the Gospel of Christ. And the church and everyone who makes her up, including you, are dearly loved by God. We are His bride. And that bride is a holy city, a beloved city. But this is what's true of you. And this is what you are a part of as a member of the body of Christ. And it's not going to change. All of these promises... These, these glorious aspects revealed to us in Revelation 21, they begin today. See, it's not just, it's not that God's love for you changes when you get to glory. It's you finally see it as it really is. And it's not that, alright, now He's securing me completely. Then, today, it's, it's, it's unstable ground. Then, I'll be secure. It's not like that. You are secure as secure today as you will be then. You'll just have a better awareness of it. You are precious in the Lord's sight. You don't become more precious then. You are precious in His sight and His treasure possession now. It's just when you get there, you won't have any doubts anymore. You will be like Him as He is. Hold on to this when you sin or when you doubt or when you need to repent again and again. This is where you're headed. This is where you're going. This is what's prepared for you. And it's a whole lot better than gates of pearl and streets of gold. Despite all of your sins, Song of Solomon 4.7, you're altogether beautiful, my love. There is no blemish in you. This is how God sees us now. And this is what the Lord is making you to be. Let's pray. God, You have... Lord, You have destined us for glory. And Lord, what a different kind of people we would be if we believed all of these things. And so Lord, I pray that You would help us to believe them. Help us to live in light of them, Lord, so that we wouldn't doubt or fear or tremble, but that we would have clear consciences before You, that we would have confidence in Your love for us, that we would be thankful for the many blessings You have given. Who is like You, Lord? 
you do not deal with us according to our sins or repay us for them, but Lord, you pour out glory and grace with both hands. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to believe that we are precious in your sight. I pray you would help your people to believe you will hold us and keep us till the end. I pray that you would help your church, your children to believe you are their father who loves them with an everlasting love and will never stop doing good to us. Lord, help us to know that you love us in spite of all of our sins and failures and shortcomings. Lord, we look forward to the day when we will be satisfied. What a wonderful day it will be. Help us, Lord, not to forget, but to remember and live in light of that day and to draw courage for today from the promises of what you have given and will do in the future. It's in your name we pray, and it's to you 